Thank you very much. It is an incredible pleasure and joy to be here at Bioneers, which is an event that I hunger for throughout the year. I come here and I get my information and my inspiration refilled. It is especially an honor to come after Destiny Art Center. I had heard about this performance for about a year, and this is the first time I saw it. And I hardly ever am at a loss for words. It, it took my voice away. It was just incredible to see that. So what Kenny said is true. I am really into garbage and into stuff. Stuff is what we call it when we still want it, and garbage is what we call it when we don't want it, but it's all the same stuff. I have tracked our garbage all over the world. I have visited literally hundreds of factories where our stuff is made and dumps where our stuff is dumped. I have seen firsthand the often hidden environmental health and social impacts of the current systems of production and consumption, how we make, use, and throw away all this stuff in our life. Seeing all this firsthand has resulted in the development of kind of an internal visual neurosis that I have, that when I go through my day, any object that I hold, a disposable coffee, coffee cup, an MP3 player, or a cotton t-shirt, the life cycle of this object flashes through my mind. I can't help it. It's like my mind involuntarily runs through this mental Rolodex of pictures I have, and I see wastelands in Oghaniland in Nigeria, and garment workers in Haiti, and Union Carbide survivors in Bhopal. And if you're going to have a neurosis, this is actually a really interesting neurosis to have. <laughs> for sure, but sometimes it is a little lonely, and people do look at me kind of funny when I'm stumbling through a Target store, having sort of mini convulsions. <laughs> so one reason I made this story of stuff is to be less alone. I wanted more people to join me in thinking about where all our stuff comes from and where it goes. I wanted to turn the volume up on the conversation about what's not working with our current systems of production and consumption. In my wildest dreams, I never expected a group like Destiny to actually make a whole performance out of it. So as I see it, there are three things about our current systems of production and consumption that are not working. We are trashing the planet, we are trashing each other, and we're not even having fun. <laughs> now, that fun one is the real kicker, because if it were fun, if the vast majority of the people on the planet were happy and healthy and having a really good time, we might want to think of ways to prop up this inherently unsustainable system. You know, if it was like a really good party, we might even say, let's just go down in flames, like it's worth it. <laughs> but you know what, it's not a really good party and it's not worth it. So let's just try something different. Let's look quickly at each one of these, the trashing the planet. Now, of course, if you're here at Bioneers or, or watching it at one of the beaming centers, you already know about we're trashing the planet. Actually, at this point, if you don't know that we're trashing the planet, you must be either living in a cave or working at Fox Television. <laughs> there are streams of data about how we are trashing the planet, lots of information that's available. The one piece of data that I think is really interesting is tracked by the Global Footprint Network. They track how many planets worth of resources we use each year. Right now, collectively, humanity is using 1.4 planets worth of resources. I was at a lecture recently where I said this, and the audience started debating, is it 1.3 or 1.6? And I was like, you guys, anything over one is a problem. We have one <laughs> planet. So, 
Global Footprint Network also tracks um, our annual rate of consumption, and so they track the day at which we have used that year's worth of planetary um, natural productivity. They call it Global Overshoot Day or Earth Overshoot Day. This year it was September 25th. And that's behind us. We've passed September 25th. That means from here on out, we're consuming into the stockpiles that the planet has evolved over eons. We're undermining the planet's ability to make stuff for next year while our population is growing, and in many parts of the world, our per capita consumption is growing. So we're not on a good trajectory. That's the trashing the planet part. The trashing the people part. We're trashing each other in a couple of different ways. One is in terms of toxics. We are allowing chemical companies to put incredibly toxic chemicals into our consumer products, into our lipstick, our sunscreen, our furniture, our electronics, into our air and soil and water. These toxic chemicals cause cancer, neurological problems, reproductive problems, a whole host of health problems. We should not even be using these toxic chemicals. But <laughs> thank you. But we use them so much that, that we've become, they've become almost invisible. They're sort of normalized. Toxic chemicals are now showing up in every human body tested, even in amniotic fluid and umbilical cords, in everybody. When, and as I say, it's so pervasive that it's become almost invisible. The other day, I saw a bumper sticker that said, carcinogens cause cancer. And <laughs> at first, I thought, duh. And then I thought, wait, actually, that's good. We forget. We are putting carcinogens in our food, in our clothes, so much in our life, we forget that it, that it actually causes cancer. Now, one out of three people in the United States get cancer. That means about 700 of us in this room will get cancer. That is not okay. We're also trashing people on the equity front. We're not only using too much stuff and using too toxic stuff, but we're not sharing it well. Half of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. We've just reached a milestone for the, for the first time ever that one billion people, one-sixth of the planet, goes to bed hungry. So while some people need to consume much more just to meet basic needs, others are literally buried in our stuff. We have way too much stuff. And, and having too much stuff is a burden. Having too much stuff is toxic, both literally and spiritually. We're so stuff-saturated that when someone gives us a gift these days, how often is the first thought, where am I going to put this? <laughs> My house is full. My storage site is full. It's important to remember this inequity because we often talk about the need to reduce consumption, and that's true in many places, but in a lot of places, we actually need to increase consumption. So what that means for those of us who are in the overconsumptive regions of the world is we don't just need to like, uh, consume less a little bit. We need to really consume less to make room at the table for other people on the planet. So now let's talk about the happiness piece. This is really fascinating. There's an emerging new science of happiness where people are researching what actually makes people happy. And in spite of what Madison Avenue will tell you, it's not the new iPod, even in that cool new color. It's not a flat screen television. It's not a car, even if it's a Prius. What really makes people happy, cross cultures, cross socioeconomic um, divisions all around the planet, what really makes people happy, number one, is the quality of our social relationships. Time with friends and family, a sense of meaning beyond oneself, coming together with others towards shared goals. But we're in this nut situation where we are working longer hours than in almost any other industrialized country, spending so much time shopping and alone watching screens that we're actually undermining, we're neglecting and undermining those very things that provide real happiness. So we have more stuff, but we have fewer friends. 
A quarter of the people in the United States say they now have no one to talk about personal problems with. A growing number of people don't know their neighbors. And I ask, what is the value of a brand new Pottery Barn dining room table if you don't have a gang of friends and neighbors to crowd around it? So the result is that we have, less we have less friends and less community, but more stuff. There's a very interesting measure of this called the Happy Planet Index. The New Economics Foundation in London does this study every year. They look at not just the happiness of different countries, but also their resource consumption. So it's happiness over resource consumption. Basically, it's a measure of how efficient a country is at converting natural resources into human well-being. So in 2009, out of 143 countries, the U.S. ranked 114th. <laughs> Above us are all the Scandinavian countries, of course, as well as every European country except Luxembourg, all of Latin America, all of the Caribbean, most of Asia, and pretty much every place else except a number of African countries. The highest country this year in 2009 was Costa Rica, which notably has abolished its military and rediverted those funds into things that actually do produce well-being. So those were the three big concerns that I had going into making the story of stuff. We're trashing the planet, we're trashing each other, and we're not even having fun. I was grateful that I hooked up with a group of funders, the sustainability funders, and with Free Range Studios, all of whom shared these concerns, and together we made this film. The response to the film has been phenomenal. I remember in our proposals in making the film, we said that if 50,000 people saw it, we would consider it success. 50,000 people saw it in the first four hours. Um, we've, we've now reached 7.3 million people around the world. And the response to the film has been very informative for me. I've learned three new things that I want to share with you. The first thing that I've learned is that we in this country are increasingly forgetting how to be engaged citizens in democracy. And I see this because I go around the country and I show the story of stuff. And for those of you who've seen the story of stuff, you know that it lays out a pretty big, pretty systemic problem. I cannot tell you how many times I show this film and someone from the audience raises their hand and says, what can I buy differently to solve this problem? Or people ask, what can I do? And I turn it back to them and say, well, what can you think of doing? And they say, buy organic, buy fair trade. And that's great. When you do shop, you should shop responsibly, absolutely. But that is not political action. That is not what it's going to take to turn things around in this country. You guys have to stop clapping so much or I'm going to run out of time. Um, <laughs> So what I've come to see is that we have two parts of our brain. We have this consumer part of our brain and we have this citizen part of our brain. And the consumer part is spoken to and validated and nurtured from day one. I have a young daughter and I will tell you from the day I left the hospital with her, we were bombarded with consumer messages. We know how to be consumers. We're good at it. We can, any one of us now can pull out our iPhone or whatever we have and order any product online from anywhere in the world and get it delivered to our door by tomorrow. We know how to do that. And it's familiar, and the danger with familiarity is that it's comfortable. And so familiarity lulls us into staying in that place even if it's not serving us well. So at the same time that our consumer part has so overdeveloped, our citizen part has atrophied. We're forgetting how to make change. 
And that's why I tell people that when you're at the store, the solutions that we need are not for sale at the store. The best thing you can do at the store is turn to the person next to you in line and introduce yourself and ask them what's on their mind and what they want changed about their community and invite them over for dinner. And let's start building that community. And if we do that, I hope that I will soon be taking the story of stuff around and someone will raise their hand and say, what meaningful collective action can we take to solve this problem at its roots? And you know what is great about that? Remember what I said about happiness and what provides real happiness? Getting engaged in civil society, rebuilding our community, provides all those same things that make us happy. So we not only get to transform the economy, we not only get to save the planet, which is a nice byproduct, but we actually get to have much more fun. We make new friends and have much more fun. So the second thing I've learned since releasing this film is that while the response has been overwhelmingly positive, there is a small group of people that would like to silence this conversation, that would like to turn the volume down on this discussion. This group is not big, but it makes up for its smallness, both in its numbers and its critical thinking ability, by their disproportionate access to national television talk shows. <laughs> now, the goal of Story of Stuff was to share what I had seen in a decade of visiting factories and dumps around the world, to shine the light on the often hidden negative impacts here and abroad of all the stuff in our lives. I'd seen a lot of problems, and I wanted to warn people about that. Now, you would think that if you are on a ship that is sinking, like our toxic-based consumption debt-driven economic model is, you would think that warning people might be appreciated. Warning people gives us a chance to regroup, to strategize, to try different things before we hit that wall. Instead, for pointing out what's not working, I and many others in the progressive movement, including many people who've shared this stage, have been attacked for being anti-American, for threatening the country, the, for terrorizing children. I was, <laughs> I was actually called Marx with a ponytail. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know what Glenn Beck's biggest complaint is about the story of stuff? He said that the story of stuff promotes social justice. <laughs> and you know what I say? Damn right, Mr. Beck. Damn right. <laughs> And I'm going to keep promoting social justice with all of you because that is the best way to honor and protect and defend this country. So what, what do we do in the face of these ludicrous attacks? And they are ludicrous. Can I just tell you, Jerome Ringo, who spoke before me, he told me he was just giving a talk in Florida, and 2,500 Glenn Beck listeners were there with picket signs, and they had pictures of him with a Hitler mustache. And they had said, Jerome, Ringo, and Obama equals Hitler and Stalin. I mean, these people are nuts. So what do we do in the face of this? We turn the volume up. We voice our visions and our values more often, more loudly. We defend and expand the space for an informed, rational, compassionate and respectful discourse about how to get this country on track. 
When I watch those television shows, which I seldom do, but sometimes it's just so curious, you can't help it. Or when I think about this, this resistance to such no-brainer ideas as saving the planet and treating each other well, it reminds me of something that I learned about butterflies. It turns out that when a chrysalis is evolving and turning into a butterfly, the very first cells of that butterfly are actually attacked. The caterpillar's immune system sees them as intruders and threats and attacks those new cells, even though they're, they're this, the cells of progress. And so, I've, of course, those cells win eventually, and a, a big, fat, hairy, ugly caterpillar turns into a beautiful butterfly. So I've come to see those talk, Fox News talk show hosts as kind of like a misguided immune system cell of a caterpillar. <laughs> and if you think about it, they have that same, same kind of like stand-up fuzzy hairdo. <laughs> So the third thing I've learned from the response to the story of stuff is that I am not alone. I was not alone in caring about where our stuff comes from and where it goes. We are not alone. It's not just the people in this room and watching us at the beaming centers and on the internet, but millions and millions of people all around the world share our concerns. Our small story of stuff office has been flooded with emails from Russia, India, China, um, all over the world, from people from fourth graders to Oxford economics professors, from all walks of life of people saying, yes, I knew that, I just didn't know how to say it. Yes, I agree, I want to make that change, I want to be a part of that. I was looking up online to see how many people in the United States these days say that they are active in or sympathize with environmental causes. It's 70%. 70%. That is enough people to make some serious change if we engage, if we work with people to move them from sympathizing with to being active about the environment. Those numbers are really, really high. We don't need to worry about the small percentage of climate deniers and people who just won't get on board. It might sound counterintuitive, but let them go. We got 70%. Let's change the system. <laughs> Seventy percent is higher than the number of people who supported Martin Luther King, higher than the number of people who wanted to end slavery, higher than the number of people who wanted women to get the votes. Imagine if all those people had waited until they had 100 percent on board. Let's just go. The core of today's problems are structural. Right now, our global economic system is structured to value trashing the planet today more than preserving it for the future to prioritize individual profit over public health and equity, to give corporations many of the same rights of human beings. With 70% of the people, we can redesign the system so that doing the right thing becomes the default option, so that we don't have to convince people to live within the planet's limits, to get toxics out of industrial production, to treat each other fairly, because that's where the current will be going. Many people ask me if I think we're gonna change. Absolutely. Change is inevitable. You cannot keep using 1.4 planets worth of resources indefinitely. We are definitely going to change. The question is, are we going to change by design or by default? Now, either way, it's going to be some tough work and it's going to require some change. But if, but if we change by design, we can be more intentional, more intelligent, more compassionate, more just about it. If we change by default, if we dig our heels in and say we're not budging, it's going to be really ugly. I like to liken it as a car that's turning directions, and we can either be at the steering wheel or get run over. But either way, the car is turning. 
lots of people ask me what's the best way to get involved in hastening this change and making sure it's done sustainably and justly. Well, one of the good things about such a gigantic problem is that there are so many places to engage. There are so many ways to get involved that you don't even have to do something boring. So you should inventory your passion and your skills and find what turns you on. It's going to be a long haul, so it'll be a lot easier if you love your work. Now, for me, it's garbage. I, I get that that might not be it for, for all of you, but whatever it is, if it's sustainable food, if it's safe transportation, if it's healthcare reform, if it's ending those ridiculous wars, whatever it is, just dive on in. Because if we do, if we work together and just dive on in, we can not only save the planet, but we'll have a much better time doing it. Thank you very much. Thank you.